0: 1 Kings chapter 10. I know we have quite a few visitors this morning because when there's baptisms, we get visitors. We are in the middle of a sermon series on what we're calling the meta-narrative of the Bible. That's just a fancy word for the big story. The meta-narrative is the big story which explains all the little stories. And each of us is living out a little story. And our culture and our world is trying to tell us that your story is all that there is. And yet, God has put eternity into the heart of man. we understand intuitively that there's got to be something bigger than ourselves. There must be meaning and purpose outside of myself. Otherwise, my little story really doesn't make much difference. And indeed, God's Word, God has revealed Himself to us in His Word. He has told us what this great story is, the beginning, the end, everything in between, who He is, who man is, what man's problem is, what God's solution is to man's problem, what man's response ought to be to God what man's purpose is with his life until God calls us home to be with him in heaven. All of this is contained in the meta-narrative of the Bible. This is important that we do this. If you like to read Albert Moeller's blog, which I do and I know Nathan does, he is the president of the flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention and really a reformer in the Southern Baptist Church. He cited a survey about the biblical illiteracy of Christians in America. And I think we understand that people who call themselves Christians in our country don't always understand what the Bible teaches. But it's worse than you thought. It's worse than you thought. We're talking about over 60% of those surveyed who call themselves Christians thought Sodom and Gomorrah were a married couple in the Bible that Sodom and Gomorrah were people, and they were a married couple in the Bible, and that Moses built the ark, and on and on it goes, and I don't want to draw laughter from it. It, it, It's sad that in what was once arguably a Christian nation, we have come this far away from God's word. So how do we find our way back? Well, it certainly has to start inside the church. And biblical teaching has been the hallmark of this church for well over 25 years and will continue to be. We're at the part of the meta narrative now where King Solomon is in the middle of his reign. And it was a time of great prosperity and peace in Israel's history, uh, a new nation. Saul being the first king, and then King David, who was a man after God's own heart, and then David passed on the throne to his son Solomon. Interestingly, Solomon being the son conceived from an affair he had with Bathsheba. And we heard that story together, and God's grace and mercy, and His covenant He made with Israel and with David highlighted. Man failed... God faithful to keep his covenant. Not without consequences though, there, were, there was grave consequences because of David's sin. David instructed his son Solomon and, and certainly his mother Bathsheba as well instructed him. He took over the kingdom at age 20, he prayed to God that God would give him wisdom because he realized at age 20 how, how could he possibly know how to lead this great nation God's people. And God blessed his request and gave Solomon great wisdom. A lot of that wisdom recorded in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, which I highly recommend you do a little bit of reading in every day, because who among us doesn't need more wisdom? I need more wisdom. You need more wisdom. And we're going to find true wisdom from God and from his word. Yet we also saw last week that Solomon, something went wrong in his life. He became a double-minded man. Double-minded in that he went to God for wisdom, but at times went to himself for wisdom. He went to God to find out what would bring pleasure and satisfaction and happiness and blessing in life, and then at other times sought to answer that question on his own, apart from God. And it led to some disastrous consequences in Israel's history. In fact, the title of the sermon is Divided Heart, Divided Kingdom. Divided Heart, Divided Kingdom. And we can take what happened to Solomon and actually happened in history and take it as a picture of what can happen in our own life when we allow ourselves to have a divided heart. Divided Heart, Divided Kingdom. First, let's look at 1 Kings chapter 10, starting with verse 24. And God delivered on everything he promised to Solomon. He gave him the wisdom, and because Solomon asked for wisdom, God said, I will also give you the other things that kings normally ask for. Wealth and um, victory over your enemies and long life. And we read, all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They brought, every man who came to him brought a gift, articles of silver and gold and garments and weapons and spices and horses and mules, so much year by year. The royal coffers were overflowing. You could probably think of a parallel time in your life when America was enjoying a surplus and it just seemed it was going to get better and better and better and home values going up and your 401k going up and your job going well and if, if I don't like it, I'll go find a better one because plenty of jobs out there and raises every year and lots of disposable income for vacations and toys and
1: RVs
0: and boats and you name it. And you begin to think that it's just going to keep on happening. This is actually the world view of the secular humanists. They have this strange belief that instead of a god, that history is some kind of god. And they mix it with Darwinian evolutionary theory and believe that history itself is pushing forward to get better and better and better. And man is going to get better and better and better and more sophisticated and solve all of our problems through science. And when you hear politicians say things like, ISIS will just find themselves on the wrong side of history. What is going on in their head is they truly believe that somehow some unseeable, undefinable force will just push evil aside, and good, as they define good, will come to the forefront. And sometimes they'll just let that happen naturally, but other times they will force you, through taxes or laws, to make whatever they deem that good to happen in society. And yet the Bible has a much different story for us. It tells us mankind has fallen, and we live in a fallen world that is falling Every minute. And yet the Lord is good and has filled the world with good that we would call common good or common grace to all people. All people can enjoy a measure of God's goodness. Not eternally, but there's family and there's work and there's food and there's, there's dancing and celebration and parties and achievement and accomplishment. And these things are common to mankind, but they're almost in spite of mankind. It's God's grace and His common grace that allow us to enjoy such things. And I believe that at some point Solomon began to adopt such a worldview, and he became double-minded or divided in his heart. What initially brought all this great blessing and wealth was his obedience to God. But at a point in his life, and this is a temptation for all of us, God gets pushed to the side and you begin to believe you're responsible for all of the success you're enjoying in life. You deserve for it to just get better and better and better. This was such a time in Israel. goes on to say, Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Can you imagine the infrastructure it would take to house? I'm not a horse person, some of you are. 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. I, I never served in the military, but, but just the size and the expanse of the military and all that it takes to keep this running. Jobs aplenty for everybody. On top of that, they're building the temple, palaces, walls, fortified areas around Israel. It was, it was really just a time of, of prosperity and optimism. You begin to think, nothing could ever tear this away from us, nothing could ever topple this. And you begin to believe you need God less and less and less. You become blindly self-sufficient. The king made silver as common as stone in Jerusalem. The wealth was so great that silver almost became invaluable. And he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees, cedar being the preferred wood, but it's scarce and hard to import but they had the money and the means to import enough cedar that the common man was building with cedar instead of the sycamore trees and he multiplied for himself horses and not just any horses these world renowned horses from the from Egypt and from Kue or if you have the king james i think it says keva and this is an area in modern-day Turkey where they were famous for raising horses. I, I, don't, I don't know much about these horses. Again, I'm not a horse person. I always think of the horses they use at medieval times. Those are supposed to be these, these special horses that are hard to breed and difficult to train, and they're very valuable. And so Solomon heaping up horses for himself, because that's impressive as a king, to have that kind of wealth and that kind of ostentatious lifestyle. It projects power and authority, makes the people feel safe. A chariot was imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver. Why not make the chariot themselves? Because Egypt makes the best chariots. And yes, they're our enemy, but we're so powerful over them that they don't mind selling us chariots that we know we could use against them in war. That's how powerful we are. We will force you to pay tribute to us and then use the very money you gave us to pay tribute to buy your chariots from you and use them to build an army against you. How do you like dim apples? It's, it's attitude, it's... Probably uh, where America was at some point in our history, where we just were like American attitude, right? We have the biggest army. We know it. You know it. The world knows it. Oh, do we have to bail you out again? Okay. We'll come to your rescue. And as Americans, we took great pride in, in... in our strength and power as a country. Israel, very similar in this era. They would buy a horse for 150 shekels of silver, and by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and to the kings of the Arameans, Assyrians. So they would buy more chariots and horses than they'd need, and then they'd turn around and sell them to other countries for far more than what they bought them for. And Solomon heaped up for himself wives. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Commentators take it to mean that the daughter of Pharaoh may have been his first wife, or, or close to his first wife. When we read Song of Solomon, a love song, we believe to his first wife, she's described as a woman of dark skin. So perhaps that was a love song written about his, his first wife. And yet Solomon didn't stop there. And this was common for kings of the day to heap up for themselves wives. Sounds funny just coming out of my mouth. It sounds distasteful to say heaping up wives as if they're property. Moabite wives, Ammonite wives, Edomite wives, Sidonian wives, Hittite wives. What do all these names mean to you? These are all what? Enemies of Israel. We're used to these people attacking Israel. So you would marry the daughter of the king of your enemies to form an alliance. And it was humbling to the Weaker nation to have to give their daughter in marriage. It it was, in essence, admitting, you're more powerful than us. Would you please take my daughter as a gift that we will be subservient to you in the same way that my daughter is going to be subservient to the king? It also helped keep the peace between countries because it's kind of rude to attack your father-in-law's country when you have his grandchildren living in your palace. And the opposing nation, hoping that the daughter would be able to wield some kind of influence over the king of your enemy. By God's design, in God's perfect design, women do have great influence over their husbands. They're designed to be the husband's helpmeet. God said it is not good for man to be alone. And he created a suitable helper for Adam. And then he said about his creation, now it's very good. Now it's very good. And therefore a man will leave father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. It's a beautiful design by God. One man, one woman. Not heaping up wives. Or vice versa, not heaping up wives husbands. I know the cynical out there would say, why would you want to heap up wives? Isn't one enough? But Solomon, it says, loved women. God specifically warned Israel and commanded Israel not to do this thing that the other nations do, because he says, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. But Solomon held fast to these in love. And immediately when I read that, I'm like, I need to look up the Hebrew, there, Hebrew word for love. What kind of love are we talking about? And it's the good, honest, godly love. It's not that he held fast to these in lust. He truly loved these women. It is natural and normal for a man to love a woman and want a woman as his wife. And yet when you move outside the boundaries of God's commandments, a great thing can turn into a terrible thing. Even something as wonderful as marriage. When you move outside of God's boundaries, a good thing, and what God called a very good thing, can become a terrible thing. Frankly, the logistics of living with 700 wives and 300 concubines blows my mind, almost to the point where if we didn't know any better, I would think there's hyperbole or exaggeration going on here, but this is not hyperbolic language. He truly had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And I believe that the numbers are so outrageously large as a warning to us that I don't think he started out planning to have 700 wives and 300 concubines no more so than the lady who loves cats ends up with 34 of them right you just keep adding them because if one brings me great joy then shouldn't two bring twice as much joy and before you know it that's the way sin works just just a little bit and the next thing you know how did it get to this point and there's no way you get to that point without becoming blind to your own circumstances. Sadly, we don't see any record of Solomon having a Nathan the prophet in his life. David had a Nathan the prophet who could come to him and say, that man is you, you, you stole Uriah's wife. I believe, my own opinion, my sanctified imagination, was that Solomon became so wise and so powerful and so put on a pedestal that nobody in his world felt like they could come to him and say, Hey, Deuteronomy 17 says, don't heap up wives and horses and chariots and gold. What are you doing? What kind of life are those 700 wives going to have? How much time do they get to spend with their husband? A couple minutes a year? How selfish to have 700 wives. Certainly he didn't have a heart to serve them. And he was supposed to be Israel's king and and shepherd. God literally warned against this temptation in Deuteronomy 17. Let's read those words. This is Moses reading the law to the people before they go into the land and he prophesies that you indeed will possess the land and then demand that a king be set over the nation like the other nations. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. And I cut out some of the text to save space here, but you should read Deuteronomy 17 on your own. God goes on to say, Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. God didn't even want them going down and trading with the Egyptians. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. I have two points I want to make this morning. I'll make the first point now, and it seems so obvious, and yet it needs to be said from the pulpit. If you are in habitual, presumptuous, premeditated sin, stop it. Now, repent and turn. It doesn't turn out well, even if right now it feels like it's turning out well. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And probably the people closest to you will reap it with you, even if they didn't ask for it. Could God be any more clear to Israel what kings were not supposed to do, and he blesses Solomon with more wisdom than anyone else has ever had, and he goes and does the exact things God said, don't do these things. I mean, there's lots of laws to obey, but specifically these four, he says, no, stay away, far away from this. And Solomon comes to a place in his life where he believes that these things are what makes a king great. And these are gifts from God. The very things God said clearly, I don't want you to have, he has convinced himself these are good things. Does that not sound like what we've been talking about in the Garden of Eden, the fall of man? Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest you shall surely die. Adam and Eve tempted to believe if we eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we will not only not die, but we'll be like God. And we'll be happier and more blessed and more fulfilled and more satisfied. So, Solomon has this specific proclivity, and I want you to know that word, a proclivity is just the way your sin nature happens to express itself. Not everything I'm tempted by are things you're tempted by. Certainly there are things that are common to all people, but there are certain sins that each person struggles with more than some other people might struggle with. And This desire for women was certainly one of Solomon's Achilles heels. I was kind of thinking through this, and again, this is my sanctified imagination. I know from the scriptures, David was a beautiful man and Bathsheba was drop-dead gorgeous. That's the amplified version of Bathsheba was beautiful. I'm guessing Solomon was a pretty handsome guy, obviously talented, king, rich, loved women. I, I I, know this this person, this man in our society, and I don't think much is new under the sun. I think people haven't really changed much over the years. And I know Solomons who are these... Beautiful, talented people and they're attracted to other beautiful, talented people. And beautiful, talented people come together because they need the other person to affirm that I am a beautiful, talented person. And it works well for a few months until you realize he wants me to tell him he's beautiful. He's supposed to tell me I'm beautiful. No, your job... And, you, and that's their particular sin. And you see them move from beautiful person to beautiful person to beautiful person. And they just need to know, I still got it. And it's very sad. And if you look at beautiful people and you're envious and say, I wish I was the beautiful celebrity movie star. I don't think you want that lifestyle. The grass isn't greener. They often seem very miserable. I think Solomon was somebody who needed that next beautiful woman to tell him, you the man. Well, am I still the man? I mean, she has to say I'm the man. I'm the king and she's my wife. And if she doesn't say I'm the man, I could have her killed. So I need to hear from another beautiful woman and another and another. And the only difference between Solomon and the people I've described in our culture, is you can only have them one at a time in our culture. Here, he just kept heaping them up for himself. When I hear 700 wives, that sounds like addictive behavior. I'm I'm not joking. I know it sounds funny, but 700, that's... something is seriously wrong in his heart. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines which are like wives, only without the title. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods. It's not that Solomon decided, I'm going to become an idolater and worship other gods. It was this proclivity towards needing to hear from women that they love him and admire him. That turned his heart away from God and towards idolatry, he began to build temples for his wives so they could worship their various gods from their homeland. must have been very difficult for these princesses to leave family and home and their culture and their language and their gods and their way of life and come live in this palace with this beautiful yet intimidating king and have to adopt the Israel way of life and culture, tradition. It's hard enough marrying one person outside of your culture and tradition. You don't have time to help 700 women make that transition well. And so I can imagine his, women, his wives became very dissatisfied, very discontent, and he just used his wealth to buy them and build them whatever they wanted. And next thing you know, Israel is littered with temples for idols. And knowing the celebrity culture that we live in, I'm sure people began to say, this wife, she's my favorite wife, I'm going to follow her and worship where she worships and go to the temple where she is and be part of her entourage. We get these romantic, glorified views of what human humanity was like in the Bible or in, you know, Renaissance England. Or People are all the same. The culture may look just a little different, but at the heart, people are all the same. God says Solomon's heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. That's a strange text. How could we say David's heart was wholly devoted to the Lord his God when he sinned in such a grievous way? This verse once I began to dwell on it and think about it, meditate on it, gave me great comfort and hope that God is so merciful that even a sin like the one David committed cannot separate David permanently from the love of God. The difference between David and Solomon is that we don't read about a time of repentance and remorse and changing paths in Solomon's life. Maybe at the end of Ecclesiastes... We finally see it. But David repented when his sin was exposed, and we read his beautiful Psalms of repentance and remorse. And so, in that sense, God can call David a man wholly devoted to the Lord his God. Would you say the Apostle Paul is wholly devoted to the Lord? I would. I would definitely say if there was ever a man in the Bible who was wholly devoted to the Lord, it would be the Apostle Paul. The same Apostle who wrote this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good, so now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willingness is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, I am no longer the one doing it but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members." O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Paul is wholly devoted to God in his mind and his regenerate heart. It's his old residual sin nature still residing in his flesh that is trying to divide him and tempt him to sin against God. The difference with Solomon is that with his mind he wanted to obey God, but also with his mind he was looking for ways to fulfill the desires of his flesh. A divided heart. A divided heart. You and I, beloved, those who are in Christ, those who were baptized this morning, it doesn't mean that sin nature goes away. It means the power to hold you hostage is no longer at work. The Holy Spirit is more powerful than the power of sin in you as a believer. The penalty of sin is gone. Jesus paid it on the cross, and the power of sin has been broken. And ultimately, when we're glorified, the permanence of sin will be eradicated. In the meantime, though, there is this battle that goes on in us, and you can have a heart wholly devoted to God and yet still have that residual sin nature. That is much different, though, than somebody straddling the fence who with one side of their mind say they want to trust Christ, but from the other side of their heart, they're actively pursuing sin, actively thinking ungodly thoughts. That's why we started our service this morning with Romans 12. Therefore, I beseech you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice and be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Have a unified, wholly devoted mind and heart to the things of God and obedience to God. Don't indulge the sin nature And use your mind to justify your sin. Here's the consequences of Solomon's divided heart. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, your ongoing practice, not a one-time sin like David committed. Horrible sin, yes. Let's not downplay how serious his sin was. But David's life wasn't a pattern of, of adultery and murder. Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David, because God has a covenant with David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. So the kingdom is going to be divided after Solomon dies. Rehoboam and Jeroboam, two of his sons. One takes the northern kingdom, one takes the southern kingdom. It's a little confusing, but the northern kingdom is called Israel. Isn't the whole kingdom called Israel? Yes, but the northern kingdom takes the title Israel, the southern kingdom takes the title Judah. Let's take that lesson of actual history and kind of take it forward as a picture of spiritual truths we learn in the New Testament. The demise of a divided heart. Jesus said, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand, which was true in Israel's case, but let's use the term kingdom almost metaphorically for your own walk with God. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. You cannot say, I want to love God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then turn around and actively disobey His commands. It won't stand. That house will fall. God will not be mocked. You will reap what you have sowed. Now, in this context, Jesus says these words to the Pharisees who accused him of driving out demons by the power of Satan. Jesus said, that's ridiculous. Why would Satan cast out his own minions? The kingdom divided against itself cannot stand, but I'm taking the principle and applying it to this context. Maybe a better passage would be in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So in the context of money. But it doesn't have to be money, and it doesn't have to be women like Solomon's Bugaboo. What's yours? Do you even know what yours is? And you may have more than one. And the problem with blind spots is we're blind to our own blind spots. So are you cultivating relationships with other believers, your spouse, accountability partner, prayer partner, your pastor, whereby they would have permission to speak truth in your life and tell you, you are dabbling awfully close to sin. And I have seen in your life that you don't fight that sin off very well. Oh no no no, I can I can handle it. I can no. It could be a good thing that God has intended to be a secondary good in our life that quickly becomes a primary good in your life and replaces God. That's the definition of idolatry. Long before you carve the idol and put it up on the mantle, something in your heart is already worshiping someone other than God. It could be work, it could be fashion. It could be straight A's. It could be toys, and the older you get, the bigger and more expensive the toys get. It could be collectibles. From the seemingly innocuous and insignificant to the most important things in life, God will not share His glory with anyone or anything. So my second point today is for you to find out what it is. Ask people in your life, what, what is that thing that has either become an idol or is coming close to becoming an idol? Well, how do you know it's an idol? Try going without it for a week. If you say in your heart, I can't be happy unless I have blank in the, and Jesus isn't in the blank, you have an idol. It's like those Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a redneck if, you know, you lost your car and then mowed the lawn and found it. You you might have an idol if you say, I can't be happy unless I get such and such, or I will sin in order to get such and such, or I will sin if I don't get such and such. Or you have 700 of something. (laughs) John puts it this way in 1 John 2.15, "...Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him." For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And we've been saying that this does not mean you cannot enjoy the things God has blessed this world with. It's it's good to have a wife. It says so in, in the Bible. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. I think Solomon wrote that. But it's a wife, Solomon. You wrote it yourself. A wife. He who finds a wife. Solomon also wrote to take pleasure in the wife of your youth. He knows truth and he knows the right things to write. But something in him tempted him to do something else. So, when John says, do not love the world, he means the world system, the world's way of pushing God aside and putting things or people on the throne of God in your heart. You can't love the world and love God at the same time, but you can love the world through your love for God. The things I enjoy in the world can point me to God and praise Him for His glorious creation. Thank you for sending me and Nathan and Craig and our wives on our annual pastor's retreat to Ventura. It was 72 degrees. The surf was 10 feet high. All of Ventura took the day off because I guess when you live in a surf community and the surf is that good, you're allowed to just not go to work. And everyone understands. And we had a great time of prayer and relaxation and and focused thinking about 2016 and the life of Country Oaks. And I didn't want to leave. It could have become an idol. And people do that. They walk away from God and they move to the beach and they say, sitting on this chaise lounge would be wonderful. Not so much. You would get tired of it. You would get bored of it. I had talked to one family who lived near the ocean and their daughter was bored of the ocean. I guess it happens. People come up to Tehachapi and say, it is so beautiful up here. And I'm like, oh yeah, huh. (laughs) I guess I haven't noticed recently. Paul says it this way. In 2 Corinthians 6 14, which is often quoted as a passage about marriage, and certainly it applies to marriage, but I'm going to use it in the context of anything that would divide your heart and pull your heart away from obedience to God. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's a name for for Satan. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. These idols have no business inside of us. This is the temple of the living God if you are in Christ. Christ belongs on that throne and the Holy Spirit belongs in that temple. Don't invite idols into your temple. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Two points this morning. Number one, are you presumptuously, habitually sinning against God and breaking His commands? Even if you're like, well, 95% of my life is like, poof, obedience. I'm just holding on to this 5%. Can't I at least have this? No wholly devoted to God, because that 5%, first of all, is more than 5 trust me. And it will grow and spread, because you cannot serve two masters. That sin will lead to a different one, to a different one, to a different one. Look at David's life. Praise God for God's grace that in David's life he repented and turned back to God, pursuing God. secondly, Is there an area in your life where you are unequally yoked? You are too attached to the world. You are too attached to something that is going to pull you away from God. It may even be a good thing. You should make friends with unbelievers to win them to Christ. But sometimes... I have seen Christians make friends with unbelievers and I think the unbeliever is winning you away from Christ. They're having far more influence on you than you are having on them. Don't fool yourself. Maybe it's a certain possession. Maybe it's um, food. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's sugar. It could be anything. We'll make an idol out of anything. Is it pulling you away from obeying God. Then Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it in the fire because it's better to enter the kingdom of heaven with one hand than to enter hell with two hands. And if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it in the fire because it's better to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than two eyes into the kingdom of darkness. Great irony there. You've got two eyes, but you're blind as a bat if those eyes are fixed on things that are not from God. If you're hearing me this morning and hearing the Word of God and there's a presumptuous habitual sin in your life, confess it to God and confess it to someone else in the church. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us all in righteousness. If we say we have no sin, though, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Time to clean house. Secondly, then, is there some kind of idol that is lurking in your heart and you've deceived yourself into thinking it's not a problem? Will you let other people into your life to speak truth into your life and give them permission to show you what you can't see for yourself. I'm preaching to myself here too. I have my own accountability partners and my, my best source of spiritual eyes, my wife. She'll cut it straight. And I'm so thankful I have the kind of relationship with her where we can be authentic and honest with one another about our weaknesses. He who finds a wife like that finds a good thing indeed. Let's pray together. Father God, make us wholly devoted to you. Show us where there's division in our heart. May the kindness of the Lord lead us to repentance, or even the chastisement of our Father who loves us lead us to repentance. Lord, whatever the thing is in our life that we think we can't do without, if it's not You, then teach us in whatever way necessary to trust You, that You are always better than anything else. That nothing else comes close, nothing else can satisfy. Expose the idols of our heart, Lord, and... Not just knock them over, but destroy them. You and you alone belong in the temple of our bodies. Lord, thank you for this glorious day and all that has been celebrated in your name. The baptisms, the child dedication, the Lord's Supper. We'd have nothing to celebrate ultimately without Christ. All would be vanity, vanity, and so thank you, Lord, that in Christ we have a glorious hope of a forever home with you where everything will ultimately satisfy and bring you glory. Give us a taste of it here on earth, Lord, a, a, a taste of your glory. That we would taste and see that the Lord is good and would want more and more and more of Christ, and less and less and less of everything else. Do this, Lord, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.